Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 224, Deadly Poison and Defender of the Faith. Just to remind you, I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month's featured podcast is a bit of a change from our normal. It's called Tiny Vampires. Tiny Vampires is a podcast about disease, science and blood-sucking insects. Every episode is driven by a listener's question and the scientific investigation that answers that question. It's available in all the usual places and at tinyvampires.com. So... If blood-sucking and science are your things, check it out. This week I'm going to start in exactly the same place as I started last week. On June the 15th, 1520, Pope Leo X issued the papal bull Exorge Domine, Arise, O Lord. The bull threatened an obscure German Augustinian monk with excommunication and described his teachings as a deadly poison. Today, then, we arrive at the story of how that deadly poison came to be injected into the bloodstream of the church and the early response to it in England. Which means that we must, of course, come to the bath-time story of Martin Luther. You may well have heard the story before, but if so, it's surely a story worth hearing many times. So, Martin Luther was a young, 21-year-old student destined for the law by his commercial and hard-bitten father. The kind of father that says, look, kid, forget that stuff about do what you love and you'll never work for the rest of your life. It's tripe. Get yourself a proper job, earn some cash, and do the fun stuff as a hobby. Oh, and by the way, here's an invoice for everything I've spent bringing you up for the last 21 years. Payment terms, 30 days. 
kind of father I'd like to have been, the kind of father I should have been. Anyway, this young man had a scary experience involving lightning, swore to St Anne in his terror he'd become a monk if she saved him, and then didn't just forget all about it when he was duly saved, and actually became a monk. His dad was livid. There's no money in monking, he preached. That is a Swifty, by the way. I am on fire. Luther was an over-assiduous monk, because the whole business of being saved worried him. He knew that the church taught him that he would be saved by God's grace, and that the church identified seven sacraments as channels to grace. He needed to do good works to acquire grace to be saved, so he did everything to the max, worked really hard at it. But still, he didn't feel saved. And how would he know that he was saved? How much grace did that actually require? Ah, so tricky. He had the same problem with confession. It was critical, of course, that he repent absolutely, that he was really, really sorry. But was he sorry enough? He felt quite sorry, but actually, well, that Thomas chap was pretty annoying. I'm not sure I was really that sorry I kicked his backside. He tied himself in knots, and it really wasn't very healthy. So his boss told him to cool it, take a bit of time off. And he set him a task to help, a task to read the works of one of the church fathers. And it just so happened that the church father involved was St. Augustine. St. Augustine's theology was a revelation to Luther. Actually, it was a bit of revelation to me to learn that this critical article of Protestant faith that would cause so much trouble actually originated with one of the Catholic Church Fathers. Because St. Augustine emphasised that only by the grace of God could he be saved. Fine. God is all-powerful. And you can't talk him into stuff. As Luther would put it, you can't bargain with God. Which is a shame, actually. Because without wanting to sound flippant, I've made all manner of offers to God, proposed all sorts of deals. And I really didn't realise I was doing anything wrong. Anyway, Augustine wrote that all the saved must be predestined to salvation, and indeed all the damned predestined to damnation, because God was all-knowing. How could he not know who was going to be saved or damned? So it doesn't matter what you do, you can't change God's mind, you can't bargain with him, it's all sorted. You are saved or damned before you're born, there's an end to it. Now look, when I told my mother this, my mother being a Church of England girl all her life, Methodist, frequent recipient of Methodist preaching in her youth, went to a Catholic convent school, she was gobsmacked. No idea. And as was I, in fact. Golly, I mean, that's tough. Nothing you can do can make a difference. I'm probably personalising this a bit more than I should, so I'll stop doing that. But what we have then is salvation by faith alone, or justification by faith alone, as it gets called. Really, there's no need to worry about how much grace you're working up during your life. It's all in God's hands. Only God's love can save you. Clearly, it's still important to walk in the footsteps of Christ, do good works, sincerely repent and all that sort of thing. But in the end, justification by faith alone. Phew, said Luther. For Luther, this was evidence of just how amazing God's love really was. Here was man, useless lumps of perdition, and God was prepared to put all of that aside and save some of them. Wow! He felt much better. He toned down his over-monking problem, got on with his life. 
He included Augustine in much of the lecturing he did at Wittenberg, a university recently established by the Elector of Saxony, a man called Friedrich the Wise. Friedrich and his successors are notable for at least two things, probably more, but two things I've noticed. Firstly, they need to have badly needed the attention of a professional barber. Why? Why did their mothers let them go out like that? Secondly, they would be the Dumbledores, the Gandalfs of the Reformation, the protectors. When I get time, I'd really like to know more about Friedrich in particular and what motivated him to protect Luther, as you'll hear in a moment, he does. Wittenberg was the first university in Germany to be founded without the permission of the church. As it happens, maybe that explains something. Anyway, life goes on. Luther lives, does his thing. And then something unconnected happens in 1517, 500 years ago at the time of speaking, writing and all the rest of it. There's this bloke, right? A bloke called Albrecht of Brandenburg, Archbishop of Magdeburg. As it happens, he's absurdly young, an archbishop at just 23, and he's 27 in 1517. Albrecht is an ambitious sort of cove. And when the archbishopric of Mainz became vacant, he wanted it. It was quite a catch. It was an elector of the Holy Roman Emperor. It made him primate of all Germany, as well, of course, being an archbishopric. But of course, <laughs> there was no way he wanted to give up being Archbishop of Magdeburg, which he was at the time. I mean, who cares about the rules about pluralism anyway? But it did mean that getting the post cost him an arm and a leg in fees, because it was a perfect opportunity for the Pope to suck his teeth and say, it's going to cost you. As it happens, it was also to cost the Catholic Church most of the souls of northern Germany, but that's for later. Albrecht didn't have the necessary spondulix to pay the Pope's asking price, so he borrowed a vast amount of money from the enormously rich trading family, the Fuggers, who came by later for collection. Uh, de Boss says he wants his money. Nah. Ah! Albrecht ran with his finger in his eye to Pope Leo, and Leo had a great idea. Hey, he said, let's have a massive indulgence sale to raise the necessary dosh. Leo sent his best indulgence seller, a Dominican friar called Johann Tetzel. Tetzel, raised a mint by selling indulgences, helped along by a catchy advertising jingle. Won't you part with even a farthing to buy this letter? It won't bring you money, but rather a divine and immortal soul, whole and secure in the kingdom of heaven. Not bad, eh? Clear call to action, compelling promise. Tetzel had a career in marketing ahead of him, or behind him, actually. Luther went ballistic. Although he was not to drop purgatory from his theology until 1530, Luther was already worried about the concept of indulgences because, of course, it completely flew in the face of the justification by faith alone philosophy. It was bargaining with God at its most bargainy. Buying a bit of paper from Albrecht would certainly help nobody attain the kingdom of heaven. It was, in his view, a huge and hideous confidence trick. Inspired by his worry, Luther wanted a debate within the church. On the 31st of October 1517, Luther may or may not have nailed 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. Don't ask. I'm not going to discuss whether he actually nailed or not. Now, this was not a call to arms, not a call for revolution. This was a traditional way of starting an academic debate. I should say something here at this point about the church's approach to deviancy. Here at the History of England, you will probably have acquired the impression that the church was a repressive sort of institution, much given to crushing deviancy, or heresy as it called it. 
and it depends on your perspective. From the perspective of pagan religions, that is absolutely true. From the Christian, Judaic perspective, it is less so. Actually, the church was pretty good at allowing a full and frank exchange of views, especially at universities, and it only got really mad and actually did something when something really big came up, like the Cathars or the Waldensians or the Lollards or the Hussites. Smaller things, they were good, actually, at letting pass. So Luther was not out for war. What he wanted was a debate, and actually he could expect to have that debate. And he'd said all of this before in his lectures anyway. However, he did make a copy of his 95 Theses and sent that copy to Albrecht, who sucked on his teeth. Albrecht could see that it had some relevance to his recent behaviour, so he sent it to the Pope. Meanwhile, Luther also had the Theses published, which started a rather furious pamphleting war in Germany as the Dominicans waded in to defend their old Tetzel. Which is interesting. Pamphleting will be a feature of our future. Now, as it happens, Pope Leo had better things to do with his life at this moment in time, such as well, making war on the crowned heads of Europe, building arty stuff. So, he told the German Augustinians to sort it out themselves at their regular meeting in April 1518. Which actually was probably the right thing to do at this point. Because this whole thing settled down into a polite academic debate. And since, as we know, it takes academics 50 years or more to make any impact on the public consciousness, if not more, so these theses would be safely relegated to the dustbin of history to be joined in 400 years' time by the Mensheviks, sent there by our Leon. Sadly, Tetzel's amour propre had been wounded, and he wanted to make Luther pay. And so he shifted the debate. He positioned the debate as one of obedience to the Pope, now, Luther was confused. He wanted to talk about grace. But the heat was duly raised with the introduction of papal obedience. Luther, accused Tetzel, was defying the Pope's authority. No, I'm not. It's your. No, I'm not. It's your. It led in June 1519 to a showdown, a big debate. In Leipzig, it was papal theologian Johann Eck versus Martin Luther, obscure Augustinian monk, and the whole event was surrounded by a festival of cheering students and faculty members from both sides. Now, in debating terms, Eck skinned him. Again, he made it a debate about papal authority and the treatment of Johann Hus. Stung by the constant repetition, Luther eventually declared, yeah, many of Jan Hus's beliefs were perfectly acceptable. Wah, wah, oops, wrong answer. Martin Luther, you have just supported a man that the Pope and the council of the entire Western Church burned to death, despite having promised a safe conduct. Eck would have felt super smug. He'd made Luther the loser at Leipzig. He was now hated and feared by the entire church, and was destined, no doubt, to live out his life in penury and obscurity. Hurrah! Just to make sure, though, the left jab of Eck was followed by the old uppercut to the jaw. In this case, the 1520 papal ball of Exerge Domine describing Luther's theses as deadly poison. Booyah! Dead and buried baby. Next! They had misjudged their man. Luther was a stubborn sort of a soul, also rather foul-mouthed, I'm told. In December 1520, he burned the papal ball and the works of Eck and canon law. He went away and wrote three books that would define most of his theology. Now, obviously, I'm a little strapped for time, so I'm heavily summarising. But in this year, and through these writings, 
a few things emerged as the basis of his theology. One is a theme which will be heard again many times in the history of England, no doubt, especially when we get to the other Cromers. The Pope was, in fact, mm, the Antichrist. This definitely falls into the rude category, I think you'll agree. But he went further than that, if he can. The whole church had turned into a selfish, self-interest group for the benefit of its own officials. All this stuff about priests being special, different, exalted, having to be celibate, all of that had to go. Everyone had it in them to be a priest, the priesthood of all believers. Next, Luther developed that theme of the clerical confidence trick that he'd started with the indulgence crisis. He looked at all the seven sacraments and he said, look, to be absolutely sure we've identified the channels of God's grace, we need a divine promise marked by a divine sign. After all, we don't want to mislead anybody. So that meant, if it isn't in the Bible, it isn't a sacrament. He wasn't entirely rejecting the value of church tradition and the church fathers. They all had useful things to say and they were to be followed, no doubt. But it's just they were simply not channels of God's grace. So, seven sacraments. Baptism, Eucharist, Confirmation, Penance, Extreme Unction, Marriage, Holy Orders. Of all of those seven, Luther would admit of only three as having biblical authority. Baptism, Eucharist, Penance. While he was about it then, he had a hack at one of the other targets of John Wycliffe, transubstantiation. I have to say, talking about all this stuff puts me in more than a mild panic, and I'm pretty sure I'm making more mistakes in one episode than the entire rest of the history of England. But bear with me, and happy for you to correct me. Essentially, I think there are three positions here. The church believed in transubstantiation, that the wine and the bread are turned into the actual blood and body of Christ by the priest at the Mass. Now, consubstantiation is kind of a middle way. This is Luther's view, that the bread and the wine are both the body and blood of Christ within the actual substance of the bread and the wine. So both of those views, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, both of them believe in the real presence in the bread and wine. And the real presence will be something of a dispute with Henry VIII later. Now, the later Protestant view, don't know if it has a name, is that this is purely a ceremony. That blood and the wine are purely symbolic to remember Christ's sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me, sort of thing. Right, now then, the obvious question is, well, OK, so justification by faith alone. That means I can spend the rest of my life playing computer games or beating up old ladies and it'll make absolutely no difference to my chance of going to heaven. Isn't this a recipe for disaster? Now, Luther refused to see this as a problem. I need to borrow from Diarmid McCulloch here. Quote, The freedom of being a Christian in his mind was the knowledge that no commandments can be kept properly and God does not condemn us for that. So essentially, Luther felt certain that people would do good works anyway in gratitude for God's loving and saving nature. Luther himself also wrote, A Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. This is heady stuff. The word libitas, freedom, was out there. So it fell to Charles V, as it had fallen to other Roman emperors in the past, to take action. Charles was a serious, sober sort of bloke. He had the Pope in one ear telling him to get rid of Luther now and cut out the poison before it was too late. But he had Friedrich the Wise in his other ear urging caution. 
as well as tickling him gently with a surprisingly poorly desired beard. Charles decided he would give Luther a hearing. At the greatest of stages in German public life, the Diet of all the princes secular and ecclesiastical of the Holy Roman Empire to be held at Worms in 1521. I should call it Worms, of course, in the English tradition, to point out that it was a boon to all English schoolchildren who are now able to write forever that Charles V had a diet of worms. Seriously, it would take a better man than I to pass up on that one. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, Luther had his doubts about going, but eventually he had a safe conduct given to him and he decided to go. This was the same decision Jan Hus had taken and regretted, as it happens, but fortunately Charles V was to turn out to be made of finer stuff than Sigismund had been. As he travelled to Worms, his procession turned into a celebration. All around, people gathered to cheer him on, to show him how much his revelations had meant to them, which was the kind of moral support he needed when he stood in front of the Inquisitor Charles V and the assembled princes. This was a show trial. Well, maybe not a show trial. It was a choice presented to him. In front of him was a big pile of books, and they were his books. Did he stand by these books, he was asked. The subtext was pretty clear. No messing. You can stand by them and die. Or repudiate them. Ah, where did those come from? No, 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 it's just a little under the weather. And live. He dithered. But the memory of those crowds and what they'd shouted and what he'd meant to them stiffened his backbone. He couldn't let them down. If then I revoke these books, all I shall achieve is to add strength to tyranny and open not the windows but the door to this monstrous godlessness. And to end, the most famous of his words may be, Here I stand, I can do no other. I am aware that modern scholars suspect he never did say those last words, but hey, he jolly well ought to have done. Luther fled Worms and disappeared, escaping his imperial pursuers, whisked away by Friedrich to hide as Junker Johann. I'm not a European history podcast, so I must, must stop all of this, which is a darned shame. But let me telescope just a few more bits. The super summary of what happens next is that the peoples of many German states, especially in the north, pick up and run with Luther's ideas and in their implication of equality, use them as a vehicle for social revolution as well as religious reform. And so in 1525 exploded the biggest peasant revolt of them all until the Bolsheviks. Luther was horrified. He was no social revolutionary. He viciously condemned the peasants and called on the nobility to crush them, which they did in a welter of blood. Luther was terrified by the difficulty he had now in controlling his message of preventing misinterpretation. And so Luther turned his attention to the nobility and what was called the magisterial reformation. The idea was teach the nobles, make them understand and then get them to convert their people much, much easier to control the message. 
In this way, much of northern Germany became Lutheran, though much of southern Germany, often part of Charles V's Habsburg's lands, stayed Catholic. Nonetheless, other evangelical movements appear that began to vary from Luther, notably Zwingli in Zurich in Switzerland, where Luther's continued belief in the real presence of God in the blood and the wine was rejected, and the idea adopted that they were just symbolic. They pointed out that every example of baptism in the Bible was adult, and so out went infant baptism. Over the next ten years, Reformed religion breeds different creeds, which in a world that valued conformity was bewildering and frightening. I simply don't have the time to give the Anabaptists the time and justice they need, but here was a group that firmly believed that infant baptism was wrong, and that a person should only confess their faith when they could do so knowingly, but they also interpreted events like the Sermon of the Mount to preclude them taking part in civil government. The Munster Rebellion of the 1530s, when the Anabaptists took control of Munster in Germany and for a while conducted the most nutty of radical, radical social experiments, terrified the crowned heads of Europe, including Henry VIII, and indeed terrified quite a few uncrowned heads as well. The Anabaptists burned for their experiment, upwards of 800 of them slaughtered for their own beliefs, and Henry VIII would be petrified for the rest of his life that Anabaptists would enter England. So I need to stop and calm down and come back to England. But what do I want you to take away? I want you to recognise the intellectual and emotional energy and excitement released by Luther's teachings. That for many, the knowledge that their own view of the scriptures mattered was exhilarating. I want you to take away some key principles of difference, including justification by faith alone, the primacy of the scriptures. I want you to recognise how chaotic this appeared to the medieval mind. It's striking that despite the pluralism that emerges of different ideas and theologies, each individual state or town continued to believe in and do their best to enforce uniformity. Zwingli's Zurich was just as likely to accuse you of heresy as was Charles V's Vienna. And finally, despite this chaos, the response of both emperor and pope was curiously feeble. Charles V was passionately traditionalist, but faced as he was by wars against France and the Pope and the Ottoman Turks, he was constantly forced to compromise with the northern German princes to buy their support. Pope Leo and Pope Clement, too, were far too wrapped up in the worldly business of diplomacy and building projects and art to focus on the world burning at their feet. So, to finish this pair of podcasts, let's now turn to Henry and England. Let's go back a step. How did England react as the story unfolded? First of all, we should note that our hero, Henry the Virtuous Prince, was a good and loyal son of the church. Now, don't shout at me, we're in 1517 and Henry is a good traditional Christian and in fact was described as very religious. The Venetian ambassador reported that he heard three masses daily when he hunted, sometimes five on other days, besides regularly attending Vespers and Compline. There is some dispute about this. There is a suspicion that he did indeed most publicly process from the royal privy chambers past his admiring fans, hello, hello, sycophants and climbers, known as courtiers, morning, morning, into his chapel. And then as soon as he was in there, more often than not, call his secretary and get some of that boring paperwork done Wolsey was always nagging him about. If so, that supports a general feeling that Henry was pious in the way that many were. 
It was all a bit rote, all a bit mechanical. He took part, he went on pilgrimage, he attended Mass, he did the Monday ceremony thing, did the creeping to the cross, all of that sort of stuff. He appears to have shared all those superstitions that were such a feature of the days before science started producing answers. You know the ones. Those kind of superstitions that make me salute every blessed magpie I meet. And the kind of superstitions that had him appealing to various saints for various purposes. He also touched for the king's evil. You might remember this from previous episodes. This is the idea that the royal touch was semi-divine and could cure scrofula. Now, this was right up Henry's street, I imagine. And actually, Henry loved the image also of being a great theologian. The idea of his understanding the intellectual ins and outs was one of his many vanities, and the vanity that would get him into a lot of trouble. He surrounded himself with men of great intellectual power, John Collett, Bishop Tunstall, Thomas More. But it seems equally that religion was not a matter of personal agonising, not a matter of great personal devotion that would tear at the likes of a Fisher or a Moore or a Luther. It was kind of, well, what you do? Like Henry V, he saw himself as a Christian warrior prince. Unlike Henry V, he had none of that deep, fierce, unbending religious passion. But when news of Luther's goings-on reached England and Henry's ears, there was not much alarm at first, if any, in fact. This was a little local difficulty with the Augustinians. And not just at the English court, actually. Erasmus wrote to Luther in 1519 to say, You have people in England who think well of what you write, and they are in a high place. The point being, he wasn't particularly worried about it. This was an academic debate. A few more things about this. We should note that Erasmus would find the whole Reformation thing agonising until his death in 1536. He never had any intention or desire to bring down the church. He simply wanted to see it reformed. Protestants, though, found his reluctance to identify with them confusing, and they accused him of cowardice. But in the end, in fact, he was to write reprovingly of some of Luther's beliefs, though without ever really joining the attack on the Lutherans. Secondly, the lack of alarm in England reflected what might have been the case had the church not decided to make this a matter of papal authority and by so doing fan the flames and turn up the gas. Initially, it was something of a theoretical debate. And anyway, hadn't Augustine himself written of the importance of faith in salvation? And finally, part of the relaxed response reflected that England had always been a good daughter of the church and was well on top of any heretical leanings there might be. Which leads us to the Lollards. Now, in the Protestant story of later centuries and years, fuelled by John Fox's Book of Martyrs, Wycliffe and the Lollards represented the morning star of the English Reformation. They were evidence that England was ready for Luther's message, that England was bursting with the manure of heresy so that when Luther's seed was cast on the ground, Protestantism burst into vital and immediate flower. Then that all got poo-pooed as historians decided that the Reformation was just about Henry and the confiscation of church lands. And suddenly, Lollardy was just a ah, couple of weeds in the corner of the field that had not quite been reached by the pesticide. There were almost none of them, really. But basically, there was this chap called Alan in Tenterden who thought he might once have seen the mother of a man whose nephew had once seen a Lollard, that sort of thing. Where we seem to be now is somewhere in the middle almost inevitably, that while Lollardy could not be described as a mass movement, nonetheless, the bacillus had not been eradicated. Lollardy had proved tenacious. And in the early years of the 16th century, 
the church was increasingly aware of its survival and a campaign had to be undertaken to try and crush it once and for all. In November 1511, this reached such a pitch that Henry's Latin secretary wrote to Erasmus that the price of firewood had gone up. For every day there are a great number of heretics to make bonfires for us. He was kidding, the old wag, but his quippet was based on some truth. Lollardy seems to have survived in Coventry, around Berkshire and Buckinghamshire, Kent, Bristol, Essex, the wild and lawless Chilton Hills, and crucially, in London. Prosecutions rose, which may have something to do with a more active searching for the known men, as they were called, rather than reflecting a growing success of Lollardy, but it demonstrated its survival. In the years before 1517, maybe 300 people were forced to abjure their heresy. When heretics were outed and agreed to abjure and return to the true faith, by the way, there was always a nice bit of theatre. After all, why miss out on the chance for a bit of a hoolie? The penitents might be part of a public procession, wearing a faggot on their back, a faggot being a bundle of sticks rather than a nice meatball, possibly from Sweden. The abjured of Coventry had to make a pilgrimage. Others had to take the Eucharist publicly. They often had to wear for the rest of their lives a badge with the image of a burning faggot, a symbol of their poor cooking skills, the meatball of shame. Some were made to watch heretics who refused to recant be burned at the stake. But in these early years, there were only about, let's say, something like a dozen of these. So, Lollards were indeed out there. They were small in number, restricted to areas in the south of England, but they were out there. But as things hotted up in Germany, a small note of panic began to creep in at home. In Cambridge, early in 1521, the papal bull condemning Luther was found effaced, and Bishop Fisher descended in a storm to preach against such an appalling desecration. According to John Fox, a group began to meet at the White Horse Inn in Cambridge to discuss these new ideas. Hugh Latimer, Robert Barnes, Thomas Bilney, Miles Coverdale, Matthew Parker, William Tyndale. Names of the Reformation. And then Luther's writings began to appear around the place. And it began to appear to be the perfect time to panic. Bishop Tunstall wrote from Germany of Luther's books, I pray God keep that book out of England. England got its ecclesiastical and heresy-fighting arse into gear. On the 12th of May, 1521, a great ceremony was held at St Paul's in London and Luther's books were ceremoniously burned. The papal bull of excommunication was read out and Bishop Fisher thundered on for two hours in condemnation. Henry himself read Luther's book, The Babylonian Captivity, and was found spluttering with fury at its indignities. The new Bishop of Lincoln had a hack at that centre of Lollard sympathies, the Chiltern Hills, and investigated 350 possibles, and about 50 of them were forced to abjure. And so, Henry decided to take up the cudgel of the faith and write a book himself refuting Luther. There was more than one reason for this best-known unknown facts about Henry. I suspect personal intellectual vanity played a big part. Renaissance prince and all that sort of thing. Secondly, Henry had always been a bit miffed that other monarchs had been given papal titles. So like the French king, who was allowed to call himself the Most Christian King, and Charles was allowed to call himself the Catholic King of Spain. He felt lonely. When he looked at his badge collection, there was a large gap wedged in between the helping old grannies cross the road and mercilessly burning heretics badges. So, 
Fanny wrote a book, they could strong-arm the Pope into giving him a badge. But thirdly, there can also be no doubt that Henry was genuinely cross and genuinely wanted to do his bit to squish Luther. And so his bit he duly did. In 1521, the King of England became a published author of the Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Defence of the Seven Sacraments. You will find as many opinions about the quality of the book he wrote as there are shells on the beach. The more cynical say it was ghostwritten by a committee of advisers including Fisher and Moore. Others say it's so bad and hackneyed that it could indeed be Henry. Others that it was actually a remarkably effective piece of writing. Well, the point where all these opinions sort of coalesce is that Henry certainly wrote significant parts of it, but equally had professional help. Henry required professional help in so many ways. It's probable that the Assertio did not push back the boundaries of theology, but it was very popular indeed, and was probably more effective for the very reason that it was all good, reliable, popular, comprehensible stuff, and therefore people could understand it and get behind it. So, before we get all sneery about Henry's efforts, good on the lad. There are not many kings who have written a book, and it's sold like warm buns. So tick, gold star. Actually, while we're on the topic, it was incredibly enthusiastic about papal authority, so much so that Thomas More himself suggested that Henry tone it down. But nope, Henry wanted his badge. Henry revered the Holy Father. This was to be awkward. But it certainly got a response from Luther. As well as being an inspirational writer, theologian and preacher, Luther was something of a potty mouth, I'm afraid. He gave out more shatological insults than flies on a pile of poo. Henry was a, quote, stupid and sacrilegious king, an ass, dunghill, lying buffoon, spawn of an adder, and a mad fool with a frothy mouth and a whorish face. Adders everywhere wrote to the Pope in the strongest possible terms to complain about the comparison. I'd guess that Henry blushed a bit, since this was not the kind of language he'd been used to having hurled at his head. So, he retired gracefully at this point. John Fisher wrote something of a theological tour de force, filling in Henry's theological faux pas and providing a storehouse of arguments for other Catholics to deploy against the Evangelicals and Lutherans. Thomas More, on the other hand, old Saint Thomas as he's known in certain quarters, he went for the potty mouth approach. He was so foul-mouthed that he had to write under a pseudonym, a so-called William Ross and William, with his use of sewage, shit, vomit, poison, pimps, asses and pigs, would have found himself chucked out onto the pavement outside any pub on a Saturday night. That was pretty much it, except a curious codicil. Later, in 1525, Luther suddenly wrote to Henry in the most apologetic terms. Because he'd heard, wrongly at this time, that Henry was turning towards his view – it took two years for a jeering response to be sent back from England in 1527 and others then joined in the jeering too, to which Luther did not respond and that, for the moment, was that, as far as correspondence was concerned. Henry was duly rewarded for his efforts in one of the most delightful ironies. After a bit of wrangling about what badge the Pope would award Henry for being such a good boy, Henry was awarded a title he himself had proposed back in 1519, Defensor Fidei, Defender of the Faith. It was actually awarded just for him. It wasn't intended as an hereditary award, but Henry said poo to that, and Parliament made it hereditary in 1543. Mary dutifully repealed the act, good daughter of the Pope as she was, 
and it was Elizabeth I who finally joined it again permanently to the English crown, and in all British coins you should be able to see FD or FID def as a result. So there we go, the opening salvos of the English Reformation. Next time we must put our dainty feet on the path that will lead to a change in Henry's attitude towards the Pope. All was not well in the corridors of Henry's family life, and Henry's family life would lead in a decidedly unexpected direction. Good people, thank you very much for listening. It's very lovely of you. Thank you for your comments, donations, and for those of you who support me by becoming members. Until next time, good luck and have a great week. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.